Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny B. From all of us in the writing community, we just think you're amazing because you put your heart and soul into everything you talk about on this amazing show. The podcast has over 50,000 listeners every month. I love coming on your show and I love talking about it. Oh my God, I finally get to speak about it. Talk about all the things that I've been with by myself for so long. I mean, you provide that opportunity to so many of us and, you know, always are an amazing host. We chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. But most of all, we have real conversations and we have a laugh. I'm feeling sick. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being here and sharing the journey. Hello, listeners, and thank you for tuning in to this Words and Nerds podcast takeover. My name is Josephine Taylor, and I'm speaking from Wajak Nungabuja, where I live and work, and where sovereignty was never ceded. Today, I'm in conversation with Paul Dalgano about his novel, A Country of Eternal Light, which has been recently published by Fourth Estate, an imprint of HarperCollins. And to introduce Paul, Paul is an author and journalist. He was deputy editor of The Conversation in Australia and a senior writer and features editor at the Herald Newspaper Group UK. He has written for The Guardian, Big Issue Scotland and Australian Book Review. He's Scottish by birth and upbringing and has lived in Australia since 2010. Welcome, Paul. Hi, Josephine. (laughs) Good to speak to you again. Um, And to you. Yeah. First up, could you please introduce your novel to our listeners briefly? I I certainly can. So A Country of Eternal Light is a novel written in the first person, that person being a woman called Margaret Bryce, who was 64 when she died in 2014. Uh, But she's narrating the novel uh, roughly, I think, from 2021. So even though she's dead, Margaret finds herself revisiting her life, um, not through memories, but literally revisiting. So in some scenes, there's living Margaret and dead Margaret. She's particularly drawn to certain things, uh, at times with her best friend, Barb, with whom she worked at the Aberdeen Telephone Exchange. She's from Aberdeen in Scotland, as am I. Um, And uh, her estranged husband, Henry, we get quite a bit about him, uh, and her two twin daughters, uh, as opposed to three twin daughters. Her twin daughters, Eva, who lives in Madrid, and Rachel, who lives in uh, Melbourne with her wife and two children. Right. Thank you. You sound like you've done that before now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the things I really love about your first novel, Polly, is the veracity of voice. And the same's really true of this novel. I think there's such a really deep immersion in subjectivity in each case, which really makes me feel as a reader that both um, Chris and Margaret are live people, real live people. How do you get into character? With this one, um, there's an obvious difference. As you mentioned, the narrator in uh, the previous book, Polly, was uh, a man of roughly my age, which in a way was a bit easier to get into. In this case, it's a woman who is um, not only older than I am now, but uh, also dead. So I didn't really have a lot of personal experience to draw on there. So really, um, you know, um, the, the voice of Margaret didn't come easily to me. 
Uh, this book started its its kind of infant steps way back in 2013, 2014 or thereabouts. And uh, first of all, it was in third person. And then I at some point thought, you know, I'm going to try this in first person and tried it. And there are various iterations of Margaret that just didn't work. They just felt like a caricature of somebody rather than a, a kind of thinking, breathing person. And really, the penny dropped for me um, as recently as 2021, when I was doing the main part of the writing, that really, we're mostly the same, which seems like a very obvious thing to say, but to perform, if you like, as a, as a woman narrator, didn't involve me having to um, completely change my thought patterns or my, my view on the world. It, people are largely the same uh, within a kind of bell curve, I guess. So really, when I started feeling it felt like an authentic voice, it became very easy to write. But that was a that was a breakthrough after years of it being feeling unauthentic to me. So re really, I was just judging it by what started feeling right to me as a character. Mm, which it does. And I know what you mean. It, it can take a long time to find voice. And yet in the reading, it feels like it just came naturally, which is, is a wonderful thing. But yes, it does take all that that time. Um, did lockdown help? Did Was that part of your writing during that time? Yeah, so, so I knew my job was about to be made redundant in 2021. I had about six months notice, uh, basically from the start of lockdowns. Um, you know, I was actually in communications at the University of Melbourne, and most of my work for, for months became communicating out to people about how the pandemic was affecting things, etc. And then um, kind of essentially communicating out to people that uh, I too was a victim of that and, you know, would be losing my job fairly soon. But knowing that was going to happen, I took it as really an opportunity to have a bit of a paid writing retreat in my living room because I couldn't leave really uh, much further. I mean, I could go to the kitchen and the bathroom, but that was about it. And so I gave myself three months. I reckoned I could easily afford to write for three months. And just knowing I had that opportunity filled me with so much energy. You know, the the day that I finished my work, I was just basically getting my desk ready for the next day to start working on this novel. And I wrote for, I don't know, it was three months, basically, five, six days a week, eight to 10 hours a day, and, and just treated it as my full-time job, which um, I guess if I'd been 21 at the time, I'd have just thought, oh, I guess this, this is what I'm doing. I'll take a day off here and a day off there. But I just really wanted to get it done. I knew this was a rare opportunity that I'd need to find another job again before too long. You know, I've got kids uh, and just the normal things that people have, bills to pay. Um, and so in a way, yes, lockdown completely helped. It helped by ridding me of, you know, an, an income, but also in terms of, you know, um, previously when I've written, it's, it's been kind of early in the morning and then I jump on my bike and I go to work and, through the day you have flashes of inspiration, but you're basically too busy to do anything about it. Whereas in this case, because it was lockdown and because I had that time, I was fully in a dream state. So I wasn't even talking to my partner about what I was writing. I just felt anything that I said about what I was writing would maybe puncture this 
amazing space that I was in because I was so isolated like everyone else and mm-hmm. um, I wasn't having conversations with anybody I was just waking up and it was all about Margaret and what she was doing and what I was going to try and achieve that day and it, it really was a bit like a dream so that that feeling you have when you wake up from a dream and everything feels so real and kind of sensitive and things um, until you talk about what you dreamt about and it just sounds ridiculous and all the rest of it. That, that in-between bit was the state I was in for a good three months of my life and and loved it. You know, it was kind of hard to come out of it again at the other end. Mm-hmm. Sounds almost like you're channeling um, something where well, you were channeling Margaret, <laughs> clearly. Um, and it also keys in or ties in with a, a question I had about um, time and that kind of creative space that you get into but I'll I'll ask you that a bit later I really like um the way that you weave uh the lockdown into and the pandemic into the book too I know people struggle with you know do I make it part of a novel or or not Mm. and I love the way that Margaret is really flummoxed by these signs of you know masks and so on that she encounters it's um Mm. very real yeah I'm really in general, fascinated by Margaret, and I find her really, she's a very complex character and she's really um, funny and smart and um, I, I wonder where on earth she came from because she is so complex. She's, she's and she, she continues to sort of um, astound me as I read too. She's obviously clearly incredibly curious about the world and really wants to sort of inform herself all the time and educate herself as well. Um, and I also love your um, Nana Jean as well in the book. So can you tell me a bit about where these characters came from? Mainly um, the inspiration for Margaret was, uh, you know, my grandma, you know, so my dad's mum, my paternal gran, uh, also a little bit my granddad, so my mum's dad, uh, and also a bit my mum, uh, all three of whom uh, have passed on, as they say euphemistically, they're all dead. And really, there's a real thing I've noticed throughout my life. So as, as a working class person, you kind of um, flip between having a chip on your shoulder and wearing your heart on your sleeve, you know, so it's, you know, chip on your shoulder, heart on your sleeve, badge of pride on your uh, chest. And those three things alternate depending on circumstance. But um, I, I don't I don't remember exactly what it was. I think it was maybe the Booker Prize judges a year or two ago had this thing where, you know, it, it was leaked to the press that they'd had a bit of a joke about, you know, God, imagine a builder reading this kind of book or whatever, whatever it was they said. It was a kind oh, wow. of a real class-based statement. And what I you know, apart from many other things, what I loved about those people I've mentioned in my family is that they were all, um, I guess, what we'd call autodidacts. I mean, I don't think they'd use that word. But, um, you know, it's this kind of idea that really you're either somebody that goes to university and has a, a brain on your shoulders or you're not. And really what I was trying to do in Margaret was recreate and in a way pay tribute to the fact that that's just not the way it is, you know, and even... Um, as anybody that's been to university will know, there's a heap of, you know, people that aren't that smart at uni or are just drifting through or not really engaging with things. They're just getting their pass mark and they go on to do whatever they do with their lives. Um, but, yeah, I've I've known in those three people and in other people, um, people who have the characteristics of Margaret, who are just fascinated by learning and enthralled by language and the world around them but who aren't using that as a commodity. They're not 
using it to put on their LinkedIn profile. They don't even have a LinkedIn profile. They're not, they're not even going to offer that information to anybody that yeah. that's what they're doing. But um, yeah, I've, I've loved that aspect of those people in my family and always kind of hated it. It made me feel very sad that they'd say things like, you know, if I had the brains, I would have gone to university. And it, it's almost impossible to break through that. They feel like you're just being kind of nice to them. If you say, oh, you're actually like way smarter than most people there, my, myself included, um, there's a kind of thanks for saying that kind of uh, attitude that <laughs> yeah, they would have ra- rather than, oh, I see, there's actually all these other barriers that were standing in the way. So really, yeah, I mean, they're, they're the inspiration in part for Margaret. I don't think any of them would read Margaret and think it's a portrait of them, but I think there are definite characteristics that she has that, I loved in in those three people. Mm. And I love that way of thinking about intelligence too, which is driven by real, real curiosity. It's not just about what I achieve in the world or, or, you know, as you say, going to university or whatever. It's actually driven by this intense desire to kind of really understand the world more. Yeah. 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 My my granddad, uh, you know, apart from many other things, built a house from scratch you know so from from the age from when I was five until I was about 18 it took forever he he built a house from scratch which is a you know an amazing property uh, that still exists up near Aberdeen and that that's one of many examples of him thinking there's a way to do this I'm going to do it I'm going to teach myself brickwork and how to do foundations etc etc and my uh, gran, you know, she she had a bookcase that included all sorts of things, including, you know, plenty of Salman Rushdie and uh, books that you would expect to find in an undergrad's, uh, you know, study room um, that, you know, she just got. She just had seen them in the newspaper or heard about them or, you know, was curious to um, to read those things. Um, fabulous. Um, Margaret is tied to her living self largely, isn't she? So there's a a kind of doubling of the eye often and some of the way you get around that or not even get around it, you're, you're reminding us, I guess, of this doubling as well as, you know, uh, you're speaking about the body and then you might say in brackets, I have no body. Um, it Was that ever difficult to handle, that doubling? I, I find it really good fun, to be completely honest. Um, it's, a, it's an unusual situation to have two of the same person in the same scene so I really enjoyed it and you know it's it's that kind of thing you, you know when a dream is portrayed on tv for example you always see the person in the dream so if it's Tony Soprano having a dream he's walking around in the dream and we're watching him in this dream world but um, I, I can't speak for anyone else but in my own case I'm never watching myself in a dream I'm watching I'm kind of just looking through my dream eyes at the yes. world so yeah, it was it was lots of fun to do uh, to try and make that work. That you would have um, dead Margaret literally in the same scene, watching herself, and um, yeah, re- reflecting on all sorts of things, including as you say, her body. Which um, I, I certainly do when I when I look at pictures of myself when I was twenty, um, and I think this is a fairly common experience. You look back and think, God, I didn't realize you know I looked better then, or my skin looked great, or you know, cause at the time, you're just filled with all the insecurities you carry with you throughout your whole life. 
And then with Margaret, there's the added thing that she literally has no body now. So all, all sorts of bodies, whether it's her grandchildren's, her daughters, her own, she's just kind of fascinated by that thing that, that carries carries us around while we're alive. Mm. So in many ways, you're kind of extending a lot of the kind of experiences that we have as, as living people and, and the kind of interesting sort of little things like that and it's taking them to another level which yeah 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 (laughs) um you bring up the idea of complicated grief in the book which seems to be tangentially related to what margaret is hiding from herself which we won't go into um via denial could you tell us a little bit about complicated grief and denial and why you wanted to write about complicated grief um, yeah, so I, I was unable to go across to a few different funerals. Um, I, I, I did the, the three people I mentioned there. You know, my paternal grand, my maternal granddad, and my mum. The only one whose um, funeral I went to and, and saw at the end was my dad's mum, my paternal grand, uh, and the other two. You know, including my mum, I wasn't able to get back over to Scotland for. Um, and in the case that that was a few years ago, but in the case of my granddad, it was because COVID was happening and we couldn't travel. And so, you know, my my last memory of both of those people are of them living, you know, um, and me being with them and saying goodbye to them before I went back to the airport, etc. So you you just kind of have to take it on faith when somebody phones you and says that person has died, that they've died, and you know you feel that and you grieve for it. But there's also um, a kind of psychological sense that they're still there. You haven't really had that closure or that, you know, shock factor of seeing their dead body or being at their funeral, et cetera. So that that in a nutshell is what complicated grief is. So whatever the usual five or six stages are, I think they all just get a bit displaced and you have a Schrodinger's cat kind of situation where uh, you kind of know this person has has died, but at the same time, they're still somehow uh, alive for you, or you you can't quite kind of bring to mind the image of them not being alive. So really, yeah, that that was um, 100% the inspiration for exploring that in, in this novel. So Margaret being still alive for herself? Well, um, yeah, as, as you said, without going too far into the, the novel, I think, you know, Margaret has her own grieving that she's doing. Um, mm. she, she, I guess, is kind of grieving herself a little bit throughout the novel. Um, she's certainly appreciating what, what was there and what's no longer there. But, yeah, she, she's got her own journey, I think, of trying to work out, you know, certain things that have happened in the past that potentially she hasn't faced up to. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so also, I guess, in the reading of this, there's a lot that people can relate to as well. And I'm sure quite a lot of people had their own experience of complicated grief because of the pandemic as well. So, yeah, there'd be a lot of people that could really relate to that. And and without the pandemic as well, there's often instances of, of complicated grief, as you say, mm. just because of different circumstances that arise. Absolutely. So, So, yeah, I mean, Margaret's sort of living for herself in a way. I mean, she's dead, but she's living. But she's also a kind of ghost. She's a whole stack of things at once. And most of the time she's simply an observer. But there are moments when when other characters seem to pick up her her presence a little bit. There's kind of a sense that there's there's some awareness, particularly children, 
it seems. And there's at least um, one occasion where she actually seems to have some kind of agency. Is this a, a push at the permeability of the line between being alive and being dead, or are you just having fun with ghosts? A bit of both, maybe. Yeah, definitely having fun <laughs> with ghosts. But um, I, I remember reading something by, um, I think it's Alison Gopnik, but I can't remember. It's definitely Gopnik. I can't remember the first name, but um, it's a writer, um, a psychologist who um, has written about this thing called lantern consciousness. Um, and the idea being when, you ha- when you're a young child, your awareness of things is so much brighter than it is as you go on. So, you know, whereas for you and I, um, you know, our peripheral vision, we, we'll see stuff in our peripheral vision, but we can kind of focus on what's important very easily. And what's important is conditioned by, you know, what we deem to be important in life. So, you know, when we're talking, the fact that we're making eye contact and not looking over the other one's shoulder at, you know, the person that's coming. Whereas for young children, particularly, I think it's meant to be as um, a kind of learning tool or, you know, their way of processing the world. They're just supposedly much more conscious of everything. So they see everything much more brightly, which certainly with my own kids when uh, when they were younger than they are now and they'd be watching TV, it's kind of like, you know, they had matchsticks between their eyes. They were so wide and they took in everything and, you know, things would come out weeks later where they'd be, you know, some tiny detail they'd remembered about the film. They remember all the characters' names. They remember every single detail. Whereas for me, I'm by three weeks later, I'm kind of like, yeah, there was a guy with a red suit on, I think, but that, that's about all I can remember. Yeah. So yeah, I am I am interested in that. And I, I do remember being a kid as well and just having that sense of, you know, things are alive, your teddy bears are alive, uh, the world is alive in a different way. So particularly with children in the book, Margaret has these moments where, as you say, it's it's sometimes ambivalent and sometimes less ambivalent that she is actually able to kind of get get past the fact she's dead and uh, the kids kids in the book are able to see her. Mm -hmm. That's great. Uh, Is that related to how Frankenstein figures in the book? Um, I'm thinking about you're, you're gesturing towards what's uncanny about that line between life and death and speaking to that which animates us is are those the kinds of things that you're looking at with and maybe talk a little bit about how Frankenstein does figure in the book and yeah yeah so Frankenstein's kind of stitched to use that word all the way through the book um Rachel is currently reading that book as as she kind of goes to Aberdeen in the final three weeks Uh, they they know it's going to be the end of Margaret's life so the, the two girls go back to Aberdeen from their respective countries to spend some time with her mum before she dies and Rachel at that point is reading Frankenstein. Eva who's the more cerebral stroke sometimes annoying and pedantic of the two girls um, and also teaches at a school and has a literature degree she's quite keen to jump in and kind of point out all these little factoids and you know more academic kind of readings of Frankenstein Rachel's just engaging with it on a different level in the sense of, you know, how, how the film and the book differ and things that surprise her about the the book, having only seen the films before. And then Margaret is essentially an honest broker, usually within her head, trying to kind of essentially um, tease apart what the two girls are saying without making either of them feel bad. Um, but yes, as you said, the that kind of the idea of the spark of life is really central to Frankenstein, as it is to this book. You know, what what's the difference between being animated 
and not animated. Um, so there's definitely that going on. And one of the, I guess, theories that's explored in the book is the idea that potentially Frankenstein's monster doesn't exist. So this is a theory that I think um, Eva has at one point that the, the mm. uh, Frankenstein's monster has just been completely conjured up by um, by Frankenstein. And uh, you know, obviously, as the writer, I have I have sympathy with that view, and there are thoughts that I've had. Um, that there's a there's a, a very common theme runs through all of Scottish literature about duality, um, and w- without. Uh, trying to kind of mimic what people say about it academically, it supposedly comes from this kind of uh, rift that happened in Scotland when um, King James took the throne in England and Britain became a country. Um, Scotland stopped being a, a kind of independent nation. The, the kind of patronage for the arts and the whole kind of culture of Scotland suffered quite a lot under that transition. So you had this duality where it's like, oh, now the Bible has now come out, the King James Bible, and everybody has to write and think and speak in English. But what about this tradition we already had? We already had a country, we already had our own language, we had our own arts, etc. And that then has come out all the way through Scottish literature, you know, um, Jekyll and Hyde being a, a kind of famous and obvious example, but there are lots of them. So I, I was, int- not that Frankenstein was a Scottish novel, but I was I'm, I'm interested in that idea and I'm always looking out for it in books, particularly from that era of whether there's a different way to reading them, even from that which the author um, kind of says you should read them. So in the case of Mary Shelley, she clearly says in the foreword to the 1831 edition, you know, she talks about the monster as the monster and Frankenstein as the kind of creator of the monster. So she seems to be saying very clearly that, no, the, these are two different people. But I think there's a really easy and straightforward way to look at that book and to read it and think they're actually the same person. Um, you know, mm. Fra- Frankenstein keeps arriving somewhere just after the monster's killed someone. And everyone's like, oh, they're, you know, wow, you're here. Oh, there's just been a murder. You know, your your little you know cousin or somebody's just been strangled. And, he, you know, no, nobody that's alive has seen the monster. The only people that have apparently seen the monster they are now dead. So I was interested in looking at that. And, you know, M- Margaret is her own kind of um, unreliable narrator in some ways through, through no fault of her own. So that, that was just another area that the two books, I felt, chimed with each other quite well. Yes, and absolutely. And it works very well. And that that whole idea of us kind of all being unreliable narrators, I guess, too, and that whole idea that we're all um, telling stories where we might be hiding things and um, exposing parts of ourselves that we, yes, we're narrating our, our lives all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you, t- you handle time so beautifully in this book, which I think is really no mean feat, given that Margaret's just zooming around all over the place, you know, backwards and forwards. And um, the movement's really associative, I, I find. It, it kind of really reminds me of how time works differently in dreams and um, and how when we're at our most creative, time works differently as well. Mm. So that kind of relates a little bit to what you were talking about earlier. Um, so I'm interested in that, but also I'm interested in whether tense was difficult to handle given that constant movement because even when Margaret's within a scene, within a moment, she's also got her own associations and she's got her memories and she's also sometimes looking forward. So you're using 
the perspective aspect, you know, she doesn't mm. know this, but this person doesn't know this, but this will happen. Was tense difficult to handle or did that, were you so much in the zone again that that just happened really easily for you? And it, it happened really easily once I worked out what the main tense would be. So the two previous books I've written have been largely in the simple past. And then, of course, you jump around from there. But the main narrative voice has been, you know, he woke up and got himself a cup of tea kind of thing. Whereas this one, um, as, as we were saying at the start, because Margaret isn't recalling what has happened, it's not, you know, I remember when the girls were small, she's literally in that scene. So for her, whether it's 1975 or 1995, everything's happening in the present. She's literally there observing what's happening. So as soon as I'd worked out that aspect, then it became quite easy. So it's a bit, you know, I guess like in music, you have the tonic. So once you know what your key is and that this is the key you're going to be working in and you can go forwards or backwards, but eventually you'll you'll come back to this kind of musical safety blanket, if you like. Um, it was kind of the same. So it, it was just, it's just all written in the present simple with variations from that. But I, I always knew it was going back to the present. So you know, Margaret will say things like, um, the girls must be six or seven years old, we're at the beach, you know, we're eating ice cream, etc. So it's all from from her point of view, this is all happening in front of her, she's like literally there. Um, so that in a way made it a lot easier in terms of tense. Mm-hmm. I love the scenes with the three of them together. You know, there's a wonderful scene in the snow at some point, I think, that they're just um they're so wonderfully evoked, the 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 girls and her her relationship throughout the book. Thank you. Um I find um so I've cried each time I read this book. I find it a really emotional book. I so feel like it um, for me as a reader, I experience a real gamut of emotions as I'm as I'm reading, including an emotion I can't find the words for. So I'll describe it to you and tell me mm. if there's a word for this. It's a kind of joyful and ultimately intensely satisfied sadness or grief. <laughs> so it's a kind of joyful grief. Um, wow. Do you do you did you did you feel anything like this when you were writing it? Um, I mean, I know that you did. I've heard that you, I've, I've listened to an interview where you said that you cried when you, um, after I think you developed the twist, but I don't really like using that term, mm. the twist. But um, so, yeah, can, can you talk about emotion and the book and how important it is for you to move yourself as a writer, but also to move the reader? Yeah, it's a it's a funny thing. I, I was just talking to somebody, not not for an interview, just you know, somebody in my life um, about something kind of related to this at the weekend. Where w- when people review things, uh, again to use music as the example, it's exactly the same in music reviews as it is in book reviews. People tend to talk about the very tangible things. So you know, oh, oh this is you know using Frankenstein in this way, and this is doing this, and this is doing that. So reviews and review culture tends to be around the mechanics of what's actually happening in a story. And then, you know, you get your three stars or four stars or five stars based on this very cerebral uh, reading of where it fits in within, you know, recent books or whatever. But really, the actual experience of reading or engaging with any artwork is an emotional experience. So you know, I, went, I was at Mona in Tasmania at the weekend and 
for various reasons, including I was just in a bad mood. Um, I didn't download the app that you get. And, you know, the app is the only way to walk around that gallery and find out who these pictures are by or video works and, and, and all the rest of it. And so, so I went through like for three hours, just looking at pictures and things. And at the end, I looked at the app when I was in a better mood and I was like, oh, wow, that was a Sidney Nolan picture that I, you know, walked past because it didn't impress me that much. Or, oh, that one was by, you know, AN other artists. But it was engaging with the pictures, so the artwork on an emotional level, which changes once once you've got the written part, it changes. So that, that, that's the way visual art works. It's just it, it's either going to hit you or it's not, and then you can read up about it later. And I think it's the same with books. So um, the state I was in when I was writing it was a kind of tender, almost teary state from start to finish. I mean, you know, it, it, it's not 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 that I was thinking this at the time, but the city I was writing it in and the situation I was writing it in was a ghost town, you know? So it's like, Oh, why did you, you know, get really into this ghost story? Well, you know, there was literal kind of tumbleweed through the streets. Nobody could go out. Everybody was tired. Everybody was um, kind of, kind of at that last stage of all these lockdowns we had in Melbourne. I mean, I know, I know there were lockdowns elsewhere, but you know, Melbourne holds the record or whatever for the most lockdown city. So I was in a tender, almost teary state the whole way through. And I think just at that point where you're about to cry, but you're not crying, there are all those things that can happen, right? So, you know, you look outside and the sun hits the trees in a certain way and suddenly it's extra beautiful because you're right on the edge of tears. So I I think everything in the book is infused with that. Um, you know, to to think of another book, you know, Stoner, um, the, is it John Williams wrote that? I can't remember, but uh, Stoner is this book that's like, you know, just incredibly sad. And when you read it, you can't really pinpoint why you're feeling incredibly sad, but it's in everything. It's in every single adjective. It's almost like homeopathy. It's like you can take all the <laughs> obvious yeah. sad stuff out, but it's still infused with that. It's making you feel that as you read it. So I guess the the best answer, um, which isn't necessarily a very technical answer, is really that that's what I was, everything I was writing was infused with my own state at the time, which was an almost teary state. And all the beauty and the sadness that comes from that, a a real feeling of vulnerability and connectedness, not to my own, just my own vulnerability, but to everybody's, just kind of looking around and thinking we're all completely vulnerable which is is an obvious thing to say I mean it's you know it's incontrovertible we're walking around as vulnerable beings anything could happen at any point to us there's great sadness ahead for most of us in our lives but we're also still trying to find happy things and fill our time etc so yeah um technical stuff aside that was the emotion I, I was bringing to the book and I think because it was written mostly in that really um condensed period that's just coming out in the book, that that kind of emotion that um, hopefully uh, readers feel as well when they read it. Mm, well, yeah, they, well, I certainly did. And I think for me that's the, the big achievement of the book. I think there's a lot of achievements there. But, yeah, that's that's definitely the, the, you know, that's the thing that stays with me. It reminds me a little bit as you're talking, I think, about with dreams, people talk about the meaning and so on. But for me, often when I wake up, it's the tone of the dream that's the mm. most the most critical thing. Um, yeah. yeah, 
And it's, it's the hardest thing to recapture, right? So you, you try telling exactly. whoever you see that, no, in this dream, I was a hairbrush and I could fly. And it's like, oh, well, that doesn't, I, I'm not getting that. But as that hairbrush <laughs> oh. flying around you, you felt a certain way, you know? Yes. And I'd love to know what's actually going on in your own brain as you're having all the feelings around this. Like you say, something incredibly innocuous, innocuous or kind of ridiculous. And, but yet, there's such a profound feeling associated, emotion associated with it that I'm always really interested in, you know, what parts of my brain are actually active right now. Um, anyway, look, yes, um, we we need to finish, but it's lovely to finish on that the note of that because, uh, as I said, I do think that is the, the, the most important achievement of this book and I really congratulate you on it. As you know, I'm a massive fan of this book and I really urge those who haven't read it to go out and uh, buy it and, and read it. Um, so thank you for those who are listening, for tuning in and thank you so much, Paul, for this conversation and for writing such a beautiful, tender, teary book. It's lovely. Thank you, Josephine. And yes, thank you to anyone listening too. Thanks. Thanks.